This is R.J. Rushdoony, Easy Chair, number 22, July the 1st, 1982. First of all, I'm going to touch on something which is not original with me. I'm sure many others have observed this before. In fact, I recall reading a thing or two about it here and there in passing. But all the same, it came to me with... uh, particular force the other day. Dorothy and I had been at Valley Christian University where I was lecturing, and on our return we passed some antique cars. This brought something to mind. One of the great and remarkable steps in the history of mankind has been American productivity. There has been, however, something very unique and different in American productivity. When American goods, American manufactured products began to hit the world market, they simply were no competition when it came to quality with English goods. I think we can sum up the difference between the kind of goods England marketed all over the world and what the United States marketed by a simple comparison, the Rolls-Royce versus the Model T. Well, that, I think, sums it up very nicely. The Rolls-Royce was the world's quality car for generations. The Model T was the people's car. Now, America did not produce for top quality. The remarkable thing about American productivity from the earliest days was something unique in all human history. We produced for the poor. Now, that was a revolution and a revolutionary fact. All through history, we have seen that production has been geared for royalty, for the nobility, for the wealthy. This is one reason why, when you deal with antiques, you're dealing with high-quality productions, things that were produced for very, very wealthy people. For example, if you look at some of the 18th century chairs. The thing you find about them is that they were works of art and remarkably heavy. So that a dining room set had chairs so heavy it was next to impossible for a woman to handle them. It required either a footman to pull the chair up when she sat down or a gentleman to move that chair up, and it was not an easy thing to do. And this is why, by the way, uh, gentlemen still help ladies with their chairs. It's just a hangover from this old custom. There's no longer any need for it. It began when the chairs uh, at a dining room table were so heavy a woman could not handle them. But everything was built that way. It was ornate, it was expensive, 
It was made to please the eye of people who had money to spend and for whom money was no object. When the automobile world began, of course, this led to the Rolls-Royce and, of course, Italian and uh, German and other foreign cars all sought the same goal, high quality, the top quality. The one exception was the VW in Germany. But from the beginning in the United States, the emphasis from the early years of the last century up until fairly recently has been on production for the poor. And the result has been an American revolution the world over. It's no wonder that all over the world people looked to the United States as the land of their dreams because this was the country where a poor man couldn't make the grade. This was a country that was geared to the poor man where the poor man could get ahead and could get riches indeed but where he had standing in that society and production was geared to him. Now, this was a revolutionary fact. This does not mean things were not produced for poor people previously, but the focal point of production was never the poor. It was always the rich and the super-rich, the nobility and the royalty. Well, the result was a very remarkable culture in these United States, a culture that was without equal in human history. Now, the significant fact is that since World War II, and particularly since the 60s, we have shifted gears dramatically. Our whole concern is no longer with being productive in terms of a democratic kind of emphasis, but in terms of an elite. And the consequences of that have been far-reaching. We are suddenly becoming obsolete on the world markets. We no longer produce in terms of a common man. What we want as a people is to put on the dog, so to speak, uh, to put up a good show, uh, to look uh, richer than we are. You remember the uh, big cars with the fins that appeared in the late 50s, early 60s? Now, that was the first clear-cut sign of the change. It was a change from the old American character. The Model T emphasis was gone. Now, this emphasis was picked up from us by another country, Japan. And so Japan began to produce for the ordinary uh, a citizen, for the poor man, for every man. And Japan, borrowing our idea from us, has become enormously successful economically. But we have abandoned it. 
and we have been determined to put on the dog for the whole world to imitate to English royalty and nobility. And the result is we are in trouble, very serious trouble. In fact, we now are even gearing ourselves to a welfare program increasingly and have been for some time that will raise the poor up to a level, a show, a facade where nobody looks poor, where poverty is something to be ashamed of, as it were. Well, honest poverty never has been anything to be ashamed of. And honest poverty has been something which generations have begun with and worked their way out of in this country. So what we've done in the past 20, 25 years is to disown our American past. We want to make an impression. We have shifted from an emphasis on an inner-directed, a character, a faith-oriented people to a face-oriented people. In other words, we're imitating the uh, older Japanese and Oriental cultures. They put all the emphasis on saving face, on keeping up a good front. And by the way, this is what marked American Indian culture. It was a face culture. This is why the American Indian could not make the grade. He'd rather lick his wounds in proud defeat than get into the flow of American life. And so he never did. Now, the significant thing, I believe, about the American Negro is that his past has made it impossible for him successfully to take on a face culture. He always remembers that he has a background of slavery in this country. Well, in a sense, he is very... Uh, highly self-conscious of something which he regards as exclusively his past when it's the past of almost every white man of a European background. Because, as I think I've pointed out before, serfdom prevailed in most of Europe. Most of your Russian peasantry were freed about the same time as the uh, American slaves. The German serfs were free, freed somewhat earlier. But almost every German who migrated to this country was born in what was the same thing as slavery, and sometimes worse. And you can trace the same thing throughout Europe. So, in a sense, slavery in some form has been the past of most of these people. But the American Negro has not been allowed to forget it. So while he's had his people who put an emphasis on face, 
beginning with the Zoot Suitors, for example, during World War II. By and large, a serious-minded Negro has not been able to put on a face culture. And so his only way ahead has been work. And we're beginning to see remarkable things in this area. Some years ago, I think about ten years ago, I wrote a book, The Politics of Pornography. I believe there are a handful of copies that Fairfax Christian Bookstore, 11121 Pope Said Road, Fairfax, Virginia, 22030, still have on hand. Now, in that book, I called attention to the fact that America has had a succession of elites. The original elite, a working productive elite, was your Puritan. He was then succeeded by the Unitarians, the Yankee merchantmen, businessmen, manufacturers, and the like. And the Yankee elite maintained itself pretty well. I would say probably in clear ascendancy through World War I. However, at the same time, another group, an immigrant group, was beginning to rise in economic power because of a work ethic, the Jewish immigrant. But beginning in the 60s, that element began to lose its ascendancy as well as the old Unitarian Yankee aristocracy because the youth of both groups became a part of the permissive generation and the revolutionary youth of the 60s. And a large number of them burnt themselves out. And their children today are deeply involved in the drug culture. So that both represent a faltering leadership. But something has been developing, and in the politics of pornography, I dealt with it, and I predicted it was likely to happen. The rise of a work ethic among Negroes, and the development of leadership there. Well, some remarkable things are beginning to happen. Very few are aware of it. But black Christian schools are beginning to rise up here and there across country, including Washington, D.C., by the way. There's one started there. We are beginning to see the rise of Negro churches, which are very different from any kind of Negro church that has previously existed. These new churches are Puritan in character. They emphasize a work ethic very strongly. They are out to rehabilitate their own people and to make them responsible, hard-working, and very capable. So what is developing in the Negro community, if it continues to, be, to spread, is going to be very remarkable in its implications for American society. 
Very important because as Dr. E.B. Hill of Watts in Los Angeles, one of these Negro leaders, has said, you have in the inner cities of America today an element that is without faith, made up of a variety of minority groups, and every revolutionary group is trying to reach them. Now you have a substantial number of Negro pastors in big communities and small who are beginning to develop a program for saving this country by saving their people. It's a very remarkable development, very promising. Well, to pass on to some other things... ERA died, I believe, yesterday, <laughs> and uh, when ERA was first a uh, national issue, I had an interesting episode happen that infuriated a number of women, strangely enough. <laughs> We live out here in the country, and Vallecito, our nearest community, is a mile away, and the population of Vallecito, by counting around, I think, to every neighboring farm or ranch house, is maybe 250. has one store and a post office, a school, a handful of houses, and that's it. Well, one morning as I got up quite early about dawn, which I tend to do, uh, I'm it's a habit I'm trying to break these days. Very often, early in the morning, I will see deer all around the house. Sometimes when I'm down in my library building and at my desk, the deer come up and look at me in, through the window. They're very bold unless you make eye contact. Then they take off. At any rate, down by the gate on our property, we're, oh, about a third of a mile back from the highway. And uh, this is further away from the highway because ours is a circular a road coming up to the house. This one morning as I was walking there, I saw something and I stood behind a tree to watch. At that time we had three, four fawns on the property which uh, had just left their mothers. Three of them were does and one was a young buck just out of the fawn stage. But already that young buck was uh, herding his little harem all over the place. And this morning as I watched, this one young doe came out very cautiously from a clearing to the north, walked out to the brow of this clearing on top of the hill, a little bluff, and went out to the front 
to the far end and stood there, sniffed the air, looked in every direction. The wind was in my favor so I could watch without moving and not be detected. After a while, the doe gave some kind of signal and a second doe came out. And uh, stood at another point looked all over for a second, sniffed the air, and then gave a signal, and a third, the third young doe came out and stood at another point, so the three of them formed a triangle. And each of them, all the while, sniffing the air, looking all over, and then after a minute, they gave a signal, and the young buck came prancing out. His... Horns were just little stubs, maybe an inch uh, in height. And uh, he stood sniffing the air so that now it was a diamond shape, each keeping their eye in one direction or another. At that point, I moved just a little bit to get a better look of the buck, and they spotted me. Now, the interesting thing was, I was going to watch and see what that young buck did. But immediately, those three young does moved this way and that in uh, wild confusion, as it were, to detract my eye, which they did. And I realized that that was what their crazy gyration was about, and I looked quickly to see the young buck, but he was gone in that split second. So it was quite a remarkable thing because that young, just as uh, fawns really, they already knew that the buck, the male, was the one that was hunted apparently, certainly the one that needed to be protected. And he was uh, directing them in terms of his safety. Well, a few days after that happened, I went to Sacramento and I took a plane going somewhere back east. And uh, a couple of the stewardesses started chatting with me. There was hardly anyone else in the cabin. And they asked me where I lived and what it was like, and uh, I told them, and well, do you have uh, wild animals there? And I said, oh, yes, we have mountain lions, coyotes, uh, d deer, and I mentioned a few other things. Oh, dear, yes, well, they, aren't they beautiful? Well, <laughs> I said they're really pests, they're destructive, but they're still beautiful. And I told them this little story, and it upset them tremendously, very much, and they were angry, and they said something about male chauvinism. A little later, they came back. Was that really true? Were, were you really telling uh, the truth, or did you make up that story? And I said, no, it was actually a fact. And they were quite indignant. It isn't fair that that should be so in nature. <laughs> so... <laughs> After that, I told that story two or three other times to women of 
apparently a liberal background, and I got the same kind of reaction. <laughs> so I've always enjoyed that story. Well, on to something else now. Uh, just a brief character. In the National Review for June 25, 1981, there is this note. Don't expect Pravda to give credit where credit is due, but the United States has given the Communist Party privileged status. The U.S. Court of Appeals for the Second Circuit in New York has ruled that the party, unlike the Republicans and Democrats, does not have to report the name, address, and amount of donation of each donor who gives more than $50 to a campaign might have a chilling effect on communist contributors. What a pity that would be, unquote. Well, there you have justice, 1982 style. If you give to the Republicans or the Democrats $50 or more, it has to be reported. But if you give to the communists, you're protected. We are giving special privileges to the Soviet Union, of course, all the time. So it goes. Now I want to go to something very different. Some of you may recall that uh, some time ago, about a year ago, perhaps, maybe a little longer, I wrote something in the Chalcedon Report on God, the Devil, and Legal Tender. Well, I had a very interesting response to that. In fact, a number of them. But one came from John Zub, Z-U-B-E, in Australia. Now, John Zub is a libertarian. He's not a Christian but he is a very superior thinker. And he sent me a copy of his very, very brilliant uh, mimeographed pamphlet or booklet. It's about 48 pages, I believe. And the title is Stop the Legal Tender Crime. Stop the Legal Tender Crime. If you would like to get a copy of it, uh, write to John Zub, Z-U-B as in boy, E, 7 Oxley Street, O-X-L-E-Y, Barama, B as in boy, E-R-R-I, M as in Mary, A, New South Wales, 2577, Australia. It is 50 cents. I don't know how much the postage will be because it's not postpaid. I would say if you send a dollar and a quarter, it would be fair. And I urge you to get it. It is superb. Let me read just a few passages from it. He says, what's wrong, how wrong is legal tender? It is an unjustified monopoly and privilege, breaches contracts, 
enforces dishonesty, amounts to a fraud, a vast and rigged game of chance, a crime, robbery, even enslavement to some extent. It is a totalitarian means leading to totalitarian uh, to totalitarianism. How harmful is legal tender? It leads to officially forged money, monetary inflation, also to money shortages. It brings taxation without consent. It is a confiscatory means. It leads to over and under issues, and often to both together. It misdirects the people's opposition against monetary malpractices and brings about industrial unrest. It outlaws the price mechanism for currencies and allows the bad money to drive out the good. It even allows the financing of unjust wars and despotic regimes. It is one of the most anti-social acts any government could commit. Is legal tender the basic cause of inflations? Without legal tender, no paper currency could inflate all prices, never has and never will. With legal tender, any paper currency can be inflated and usually is. How do currencies function without legal tender? Currencies freely issued and competing against each other, and this would require free market rates for all of them, would preserve their values precisely because they could suffer a price fall. Then only good managers could issue them successfully, and in their self-interest would keep them sound. Moreover, the people themselves could safeguard their rights against any bad issue simply by refusing to accept any depreciated currencies. Good money would then drive out the bad. At least local currencies and private money tokens could then be issued whenever and wherever needed by all productive people who want to clear their services or goods freely and easily. Thus our monetary difficulties would disappear. Inflation and deflation would become impossible and even fraud and forgery would be reduced to a minimum. How to end the rule of legal tender? We will have to resist the government's monetary policies by something like a monetary revolution. Well, he then goes on to say that he predicts that in our lifetime will, legal tender will finally and permanently be repealed and thereby make inflation impossible. He is for gold, of course, but he does not believe in gold becoming legal tender. He believes that uh, no civil government should be in the business of saying, this is good money and this is not. All it should do is to allow free market and Sound money will prevail. People will try different things. But ultimately, it will be sound money that will prevail. His thesis, of course, is that when a government insists on legal tender, it's going to inflate, and it will be easier for that country to go to war. When you do not have legal tender... You take away the power of the state to create money and the power of the state to wage war uh, freely and regularly. He says, now think this one over. 
please do also compare a legal tender with other compulsory practices. Compulsory education conscripts your youth. Compulsory taxation your property. Compulsory army service your life. While compulsory, uh, compulsory acceptance and forced value legal tender conscripts your exchanges. All under the pretense of taking care of you. All in the service of myths and power. All do more or less collectivize you and destroy your individualism, your liberty, and persuade you to patiently suffer these chains and give the consent of the victim to these measures and the myths behind them." Unquote. Now, despite the uh, libertarian uh, bias there, I would have to say what he says is essentially uh, sound, as he call, uh, uh, calls attention to a very key fact, a government never goes bankrupt. Only its creditors do. He says, I hold that legal tender is the expression of monetary despotism, the ideal of value astrologers, vulgar economists, neocomics, and dictocrats, unquote. Now, that's rather strong. But uh, there's much to it. And he says further, Professor H. Ritterhausen once went so far as to call legal tender the war money characteristic of the central bank's notes. Ulrich von Beckerath commented upon this, legal tender is for the economy, what the power to make war is in politics. In other words, if you give the power to make legal tender to any civil government, you will thereby give it the power to control the economy. Legal tender means forced acceptance of a certain form of money, a forced circulation. It means a forced value. It means a course of meddling with property, trade, enterprise, the market, just about everything. Legal tender, he says, outlaws good money and forces bad money of GI issue uh, into circulation. Well, it's an excellent pamphlet. I'm tempted to quote it. Uh, well, let me quote a little more. Legal tender forces all to gamble all their assets expressed in fixed money denominations, that is, bonds on the value of paper money, which is almost continuously and intentionally deteriorated, thanks to full employment policies. Legal tender is one of the greatest swindles and one practiced by all present governments. It amounts to legalized robbery by establishing a compulsory legal pretense of fair trade and payment precisely when both are absent. Legal tender is very important as a means for the government to get something for nothing. Through legal tender, the government taxes you without even a pretense of having gained your consent first. Legal tender is a tool for expropriation. 
Legal tender is an especially, especially mean kind of despotism. It is morally no better than forced labor, an enforced marriage, or an enforced sale. Legal tender is one of the first steps of totalitarianism and draws all others gradually with it. Well, I'll let you get the... Uh, little booklet and read it on your own. It is definitely worthwhile. I think Zub's work needs uh, more circulation in this country. If we want inflation, we need to defend legal tender. If we want totalitarianism, we need to defend it. But if we're against those things, then we have to get rid of legal tender. Now I'm going to glance at a book, not uh, a recent one by any means. In fact, it goes back to 1940. It was published by Claremont College then. It's Roscoe Pound's Contemporary Juristic Theory. Now, Roscoe Pound, as one of the great authorities in the law, should have something to say. How little he has to say gives us an idea why we are in the trouble we are in today. Roscoe Pound asks the question, what is law? And he calls attention to the current answers. One answer to the question, what is law, is that the system and order are illusions. The only reality is force, and so law is defined as force. Again, he says, law is used to mean a body of authoritative materials or grounds of decision or determination. But he doesn't say where this authority comes from. Then again, a third meaning is the judicial process. But why the judicial process uh, should define law, he does not say, nor does he give any rationale for the judicial process. He says law presupposes ability to control the primitive tendencies in men who exercise power. But what is the nature of that law? Where does it come from? As a matter of fact, he cites the very common opinion that we must separate ethics from law. And yet, at the same time, he says, we are seeing a tendency to eliminate the ought from law. What ought to be has no place in physical science. It has first place in the social sciences, he says. Well, what then is law? Pound never comes to grips with a uh, question with a, and comes up with the answer that 
tells us what right and wrong are. He says we may concede, if you will, that there is no absolute value, that value is relative to something. Perhaps value in jurisprudence is relative to civilization. Approximately, it is relative to the task of the legal order, to the task of enabling men to live together in civilized society with a minimum of friction and a minimum of waste of the goods of existence. What accords with the general postulates of the civilization of the time and place has juristic value. If it will work in adjusting relations and ordering conduct so as to eliminate or minimize friction and waste, it is a valuable measure for a practical activity. Unquote. All he has said is that if it works and makes society productive, apparently then it's true value and good law. This is to say that because Nazi Germany was highly productive, they had the truth. But of course, Pound would never have admitted that. Certainly, such people would say that if the Soviet Union were productive, then their laws had value. Our law today is bankrupt because it has no faith. The concluding sentence in Pound's book is, and I quote, it is bad social engineering to administer justice to a blueprint of a society of the past as a means of maintaining the jural postulates of a civilization in a different society of the present, unquote. In effect, he was saying what uh, Roosevelt said in his attack on the Supreme Court, that it was a horse and buggy outfit, and the Constitution was a horse and buggy outfit, and we are now in a modern age. So, Pound says, we've got to have laws that meet the needs of our age. Well, he was then in effect saying values are going to change continually, that they have no substance. They have no character in and of themselves that makes them transcendental above and beyond and over man. As a result, all you can say for Pound's ideas of law is that they led to what we have today. As a matter of fact, I picked up the other day for purposes of reference a book I read some years back, and it was by Abel P. Upshur, U-P-S-H-U-R, The Federal Government, Its True Nature and Character, being a review of Judge Story's commentaries on the Constitution of the United States. This was originally published in 1868. Now, Story was one of the great judges of the early years, a very important figure, and Upshur was popularizing in terms of his own thinking the ideas of Story. 
But all we have to do is to look at his thinking and we can see in what was a rather conservative liberalism the seeds of its own destruction. He says concerning taxation, and I quote, There is no perfectly just rule of taxation but property. Every man should contribute to the support of the government according to his ability, that is, according to the value of that property to which government extends its protection, unquote. Now, <laughs> the Bible has a different means of uh, taxation. The law of God as given through Moses says it is to be the same for every male twenty years old and older. But there is to be no respect of persons, rich or poor. The taxed amount was something within the means of all, rich or poor. God has the right to take away something from the rich if he so chooses in his providence. Man does not have that right. But when you say, from each according to his ability, it leads to communism. Now, Upshur's idea there was each according to his ability in terms of the amount of property he has. But once you establish the premise from each according to his ability, it leads to the evils of the inheritance tax, the income tax, and much more. And you have precisely what we have today. Now, at the same time, the older idealism was very thoroughly unsound. Because the older idealism had in it the Neoplatonic idea that the ultimate truth was a part of the processes of this world and would manifest itself in points of leadership. This is what Hegel meant when he saw spirit or idea incarnating itself in the state as the great institution of mankind. The consequences of this is that as Turakramata said, and of course this goes back some centuries, and I quote, in every order, when the whole power of inferiors depends on and originates from the power of the superior, the power of the superior can extend itself over all those things over which the power of the inferiors can extend itself. This means, as he went on to say, any king can perform immediately in his realm whatever the inferior power can perform, even without their having been requested, unquote. What this means is that the superior power as the high point of the idea of spirit, of geist, of the reality of being, has total power and all things exist under it. And this is why Neoplatonic thought always led to totalitarianism. And this is why in the modern world, where all political theories are derived from Hegel, 
the same thing is happening. Because for Hegel, the world spirit, as it is evolving and developing itself, reaches in every age its high point in the peak of power, which means the state. Therefore, truth, the truth for the day, is incarnate in the state. Now, the state therefore becomes the umbrella under which all things must exist because it comprehends all truth within itself. If all things live and move and have their being in a God who is transcendental, who is not in this world, as a present participating part of the being of this world, then man has freedom because God is separate from the world and God does not impose day by day his presence on man in the form of overruling all things. Now, God does this in the form of predestination, but that's another thing. This is not in the form of direct, immediate, overbearing rule as with a state. But the state is a part of the same being that we are. It's a part of this world. It's a manifestation of a human activity and an agency. And the state as present in the world governs us, overrules us, says you live and move and have your being in me and therefore I'm going to have total oversight over you. And the consequence is tyranny. Now, to go on to something else, just very briefly. You will recall that last time I touched on something from Robert H. Bremner's The Public Good, Philanthropy and Welfare in the Civil War Era. I'd like to return to that book briefly. There's so much in it that I, I'm not going to be able to give you any kind of survey of the book. But here's an interesting fact. Of the approximately 4,500 Negroes in 1860, 4 million, 4 million 500,000 Negroes, 4 million were slaves, 500,000 free, unquote. In other words, one out of nine Negroes in 1860 were free. Very few people are aware of how high the percentage was. Then another interesting fact in this book. We often forget that a great deal of harm was done uh, by northern agitators who made all kinds of promises to uh, the slave population and the newly freed slave population so that the expectation of bonanzas was raised. Forty acres and a mule was the expectation of almost every freed uh, Negro. What these expectations did uh, were tragic. First of all, they created a gap 
between the freed slave and his former masters. There had been, in many cases, a friendly relationship. It depended upon the master. Uh, some were bad, but the majority were fair to good. There had been a friendly and a family relationship. This does not mean that the slaves would not have preferred freedom, but there had been a relationship. Now, if they were going to get all this land and a mule, where were they going to get it? From their masters. So it created a gap. It created problems. And it created bitterness on the part of many of the slave owners that the slaves whom they had loved and cared for in many cases, deserted them and turned against them. After all, they expected to profit from their masters. Well, they did not. But the breach was created. And so, a situation of an undercurrent of hostilities did develop. On top of that, we hear too much about what was done for the Negro by the North, by the Continental Congress. For example, uh, there are a number of agencies, including the uh, Freedmen's Bureau, the Famine Relief Commission, and so on, worked among the slaves, the newly freed slaves. In summarizing and defending Bureau Relief, Howard denied that it had been a pauperizing agency. The wonder, he wrote in 1869, is not that so many, but that so few have needed help. He estimated that out of four million former slaves, only one in two hundred freedmen had received assistance. Most of these helped, he asserted, were people whose circumstances would have made them objects of the public charity in any state at any time. In view of the meager aid available and the suspicious attitude displayed towards applicants, it is not surprising that former slaves, looking back on the hard times after the war, expressed dissatisfaction with relief efforts. Them Yankees, who as mean folks, recalled Sarah Deborah of Durham, North Carolina. After 70 years, she had not forgotten or forgiven the unpalatable rations, saying, I was never hungry till we was free, and the Yankees fed us. We didn't have nothing to eat except hardtack and midland meat. I never saw such meat. It was thin and tough with a thick skin. You could boil it all day and all night, and it wouldn't cook done. I wouldn't eat it. I thought twas mule meat, mules that done been shot on the battlefield and dried. I still believe twas mule meat. Not poor quality, but denial of his assistance was what galled Lorenzo Ivey, a student at the Hampton Institute, who became a teacher and principal in Virginia schools. Ivey said of the bureau of officer who had denied his family help in the winter of 1865 to 66. He had on Uncle Sam's clothes, but he had Uncle Jeff's heart. 
We forget also the cost of that war, the human cost. Let me read this paragraph. The most moving passage of Lincoln's second inaugural address with malice toward none, with charity for all, was the opening part of a sentence bidding the nation to bind up the wounds of war and care for him who shall have borne the battle and for his widow and his orphan. Some of the wounds were beyond healing. The battles, accidents, diseases, and other hazards of war cost the lives of more than 600,000 men, sons and husbands, who are actual or potential breadwinners and fathers of families. South Carolina sacrificed the lives of 23% of its military population. North Carolina, 17%. Of the men who marched to war from Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine, less than half returned to those states as permanent residents. The North escaped the physical devastation experienced by portions of the South, but the disruption and unsettlement of the war years left it with a permanent unemployed population of about one million. So the human cost of the war was very, very great. Well, much more to say, but our time is now ended. Uh, I'll go on perhaps with this and certainly with some other things when we next get together. Thank you again for listening to me.